Lord willing. Okay? Any thoughts or questions about what's going on in this class or where we're headed, what we're doing? You okay? Well, there is no funny video today. Uh, sorry. I know that that's everyone's favorite part of this class. But uh, <clears throat> we are, of course, focusing on how corrupt we humans are. And it's no laughing matter. And so today we're not going to start with a joke. We're just getting right into it. Uh, but we're, we're jumping in where we left off last week with this quote from John Frame. These passages that we're looking at, that we've been studying, they describe what we are apart from Christ. There is some danger in this procedure because the Bible's descriptions of sin apart from grace are terrible. Hopefully you've grasped that, right? The Bible's descriptions of sin apart from grace, it's bad. Taken in themselves, they destroy hope. But the Bible does encourage us to take these evaluations in themselves in order to take away the hope that we can save ourselves. Okay? So that's what we're doing is uh, we're getting to the point where we lose all hope. That's what we're up to here. Okay? We're losing all hope uh, because we're getting set up for our study of Jesus Christ and uh, the solution to our problem. Okay, so if you're on page 15, that's where you should be, page 15, and that section titled Man's New Nature down there, that's where we are, Man's New Nature, about the middle of the page, Romans 5, as we have seen, clearly teaches that death is the penalty for sin. So now man is naturally, spiritually dead and is subjected to physical death. Okay, I think we got here last week, but if you didn't see those, that's, you got some blanks there. Man is naturally, spiritually dead. That's what you can fill in. And subjected to physical death. Additionally, human beings now sin by nature. We do not have to be taught how to disobey God. Human beings now sin by nature. Isn't that the truth? We uh, do not have to be taught how to be rebellious, do we? It's just instinctual for us, okay? So now what I want to do, if you look down over your notes on 15 and 16, you see that we have these phrases uh, or these sentences that start with an underlined word, starting with depravity, then corruption, then incapability, and then guilt. So what I want to do for our lesson today is cover these four aspects of the sin nature. Now... There's a ton of overlap between these words. Depravity doesn't mean something wholly different than incapability. And guilt doesn't mean something wholly different than corruption. They all feed into one another. They all overlap with one another. So there's a lot of the same things that you're going to be seeing. But what we're doing is looking at the natural man's nature from just a couple different perspectives here. That's what we're doing. And getting uh, the Bible's varying descriptions on the sin of man. Okay? So, to sum up, before we get into the details, in the natural state, all people are guilty in Adam. All people have fallen short. All people are incapable of doing spiritual good, and all people are condemned by God. So, here is the big picture. You notice each one of them starts with the little term, all people. This is comprehensive, this is exhaustive, it's thorough. Every single person in the natural state is guilty, is falling short of the glory of God, is incapable of doing spiritual good. That might be a more difficult pill to swallow. And are condemned by God in that state. 
So that's the big picture. Now let's look into each one of these specifically, starting with depravity. One way of describing, describing man's totally fallen state is to say that he is totally depraved. Now definitions are very, very important. Okay? So I want to start off with my definition of depravity. Depravity describes the natural state of man apart from God's grace. His heart and mind are captive to sinful desires and rebellious motivations. Okay, So you have that on your sheet there. Depravity refers to how man's heart and mind are now captive to sinful desires and rebellious motivations. If you're looking for a word to highlight in that definition, it's the word captive. There is a, a captive state of man with sinfulness and rebellion. Okay? It's not like uh, you know the cartoon, you've got the little devil on your shoulder and the little angel on your shoulder, and moment by moment, event by event, you just got a free choice. You can jump, jump over to the bad side, you can jump over to the good side. Nope, nope. What the Bible puts forth is a captivity, or to use the, the Bible's term, enslavement. There's a slavery to sin. And what is essential about slavery? You stay where you are, right? There's the term runaway slave. Slaves aren't supposed to run away. So if the natural man is a slave to sin, that means he is captive. He is in that realm. He's locked in. He's a slave to his master. His master is sin. And we can start seeing this in Scripture in John 3. Let's look at John 3, verses 18 and 19. You have Jesus interacting with Nicodemus at the start of the chapter. And there's a bit of uh, dispute, and it's really like impossible to settle. Is it still Jesus speaking as we get down to verses 16 and following? You know the phrase, because it's like the most popular verse ever, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Well, the question is, did Jesus say that or did John the Apostle say that? My red letter Bible has that in red. But there are some that don't because it's just hard to know when Jesus stops speaking because John doesn't give us a real clear concluding element that Jesus ended speaking. So it could be Jesus. It could be the Apostle John. Either way, we have the Word of God. And let's look at uh, verses 18 and 19 of John 3. Who can read that for us? Two verses. Go ahead, Stan. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Wow. Men loved darkness rather than the light. And Jesus says that this is the judgment. You put the light before men, and they're not like in between again. It's not like, well, some of them chose light, and some of them chose darkness, and they're just like free agents moment by moment. Today I'll wake up and choose Jesus, but tomorrow maybe I'll wake up and not choose Jesus. No. They love the darkness rather than the light. That's the sweeping summary statement of what's going on there. So it's critical to catch what, what is being said. A person is judged based on what he, she does with Jesus. Very important concept to remember. This is the judgment, Jesus says, that the light, he is the light, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. The light came into the world, John 1. He's, you could say he's the light. Okay? 
God is light. First John, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Jesus is the light, and this is the judgment. He comes into the world, and he was rejected. Middle of verse 19, men love the darkness rather than the light. Men naturally love darkness rather than the light. No qualifications are placed on the word men. Okay? The men that are spoken of here, either by Jesus or the Apostle John, there's no qualification there. It doesn't say, and the particularly evil people love the darkness rather than the light. That's not what it says. It says, men, all people, mankind, humankind, if you want to be more politically correct, right? (laughs) Love the darkness rather than the light. So here, the Word of God is indicating something about the natural instinct of all people, is that we enjoy the darkness rather than the light. I I imagine your own life bears that out too, doesn't it? (laughs) If you look back to just what you naturally do, The Bible talks about serving the flesh, living by the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, lust of the eyes. Yeah, you've experienced this. Any thoughts or questions on John 3 while we're here? On this little two-verse passage? You can also notice I'm drinking out of this very fashionable mug. (laughs) That can be yours with a donation to the building fund. We're doing all right. We're, we're actually, I, I didn't get it in the bulletin this week because uh, it slipped my mind. We're going to have a, a meeting, a church meeting, two weeks from today about the building. So, yeah, that'll be announced soon. Dex. Do you have a spare copy of Let's see uh, if, Evelyn, are we out of 15 and 16 now? Okay, Dex needs 15 and 16. Thanks. Hey, it's good to see so many people here today. We're running out of copies. Joe, do you have a question or a thought? I did. It's been 45 seconds. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Well, if it comes back, just throw that hand up. Yeah, not a problem. Lizzie. How do you get that statement, a person is judged based on what he or she does with Jesus from this Well, look at how verse 19 starts. This is the judgment. Okay? This is the judgment. That the light has come into the world. And I don't... What what translation do you have, Lizzie? Uh, Okay, does it... Well, it doesn't probably capitalize light, does it? Or is light capitalized? Okay. All right. Well, the NASB goes ahead and capitalizes this for us. The light has come into the world. And this actually refers back to the first uh, chapter of John. If you go back to John 1... And uh, go to verse 4. It talks about the Word. And it says in John 1, 4, In the Word was life, and the life was the light of men. Okay, so John from the beginning is connecting Jesus with light. And it says in verse 5, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it or understand it. So we have this, uh, this idea that Jesus is capital L, light. Keep reading. Verse 6, there came a man sent from John, or sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about that light. So the light is speaking of Jesus. Uh, Verse 8, he was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. Verse 9, there was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. 
So Jesus here is saying something extremely similar, if this is Jesus speaking. Again, it could just be the Apostle John in 3.19, where he says that the light has come into the world. It's the same thing we're getting in chapter 1, and the light is Jesus. And men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. And so the judgment is, what do you do with the light? And in man's natural state, they all reject the light. And that's the judgment. So man is judged by what he does with the light. And all men naturally reject the light. Okay? Good question. Other thoughts or questions on John 3? Okay, well, let's get a little punchier and go to Ephesians 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Now, to set up the context here a little bit, you have Paul writing to Christians. So these are people who have been born again. These are people who are no longer enslaved to sin. People who have found freedom from sin by finding freedom in Jesus. These are believers in the gospel who have been born again, who have been given a new nature. But what Paul is doing here is helping them remember what they used to be like. And that's helpful sometimes, isn't it? Sometimes we can get a little, I don't know, lost in our own thinking and need to be reminded about where we've been and where we are. So that's what Paul is doing here in Ephesians chapter 2 in verses 1 through 3. So would someone read those three verses for us? Okay. Okay. And you were dead in your trespass in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Okay, well, those are some strong terms, aren't they? Uh, Let me ask you, is there any way to read this passage in a legitimate way and come away with the idea that man in his natural state is just neutral? No. All right, thank you. No. Uh, Look at the end of verse 3. By nature, what were all people? Or what are all people by nature? Children of wrath. That's it. Notice not children of God. That's the whole concept of adoption. You get that in John chapter 1 also, but you also get it in Galatians 4 and some other places. We have to be adopted. And God, because He is so rich in mercy, with the great love with which He loved us, He adopted children of wrath to be his children. That's pretty amazing. He didn't go looking for the best, the brightest. He didn't go looking for the righteous, the strong, the wise. No, he went to the children of wrath and those who recognized that they couldn't save themselves. Man's natural state is one of deadness. Okay, Catch that in verse 1. It's very strong language. You were dead. Remind me what a dead man can do. Nothing. Oh, okay. All right. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, of course, there's there's a a measure of metaphor here because people in their natural state aren't brain dead, most of them. And so, I mean, they're able to like think and breathe and move around and to do stuff, to be creative, to reflect the image of God still in certain ways, right? We recognize all this. However, 
there is something that's being addressed here spiritually in their, in their soul, something in their immaterial aspect. Their spirit was dead to God. Not alive to God, but dead to God. And that is very strong language. The dead person can't do anything. So rather than being children of God who obey Him by nature, people are children of wrath, characterized by disobedience, and they follow Satan. <laughs> See that at the end of verse 2 where it says, uh, there, or I guess the whole of verse 2, we were walking according to the prince of the power of the air. That's not Jesus. The prince of this world currently is Satan. Satan has been given a measure of domain reign by God. Now, he's not greater than God. He's not equal with God. He's never going to defeat God. He's on a leash, and God holds the end of the leash. Okay? As Martin Luther said, the devil is God's devil. Okay? He's not a free agent. But he's been given a measure of rule. He's the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Satan has an influence on the natural man. Satan had an influence on you before you were born again. And you were walking not according to obedience toward God. You were walking in accordance to disobedience. That's how you were characterized in your natural state. That's how God viewed you in your natural state as a child of wrath, one who disobeyed. All right? Thoughts or questions on Ephesians 2, 1 through 3? Dex. Is this the like doomed from the womb thing? Oh, yeah, doomed from the womb. And we, we looked at last week uh, not just from birth, but from conception, right? David says, uh, Psalm 51, we looked at last week. David says, In sin my mother conceived me. So there is something linked to the very moment of conception. Yes, we're speaking of a true human life made in the image of God. There is sanctity, there's dignity, there's reverence there. Yet spiritually, there's depravity there already. Yep. yep. Other thoughts or questions? How yes, Connie. Say, hi. Hmm. How did Satan get the power to have the authority of this yeah. world? So um, a few weeks ago, we looked at uh, <clears throat> Satan's fall, where Satan was created, of course, as an angel of light. He was an anointed cherub. He was in a beautiful place. And he had authority from the beginning, actually. But it was as a good angel. And so if we're looking at the very beginning of the measure of reign that Satan had, it was actually in his good state before he fell. When he led uh, the other angels into rebellion against God, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, uh, Revelation 12, this is where we get all this. Satan said in his heart, I will make myself like the most high. I will, you know, be equal with God, and I will uh, basically exalt myself. In that, he fell. He became corrupt. He became a demon. And those who went with him, the other angels that went with him, became demons. That's where we get demons. And it seems as though their authority, of course, did change, but not a whole lot. And God doesn't reveal a whole bunch of details about this, but he does give us some details about the, the reach of demons. I mean, you think about even just uh, as the Christian is commissioned to put on the whole armor of God because you've got Satan coming after you. You've got the devil like a roaring lion walking about. So he has a domain. And in this world, before the return of Christ, he has influence. 
Now, um, there's something that happened on the cross, which is interesting. In Colossians chapter 2, it says that uh, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities. Now, there we're talking in a spiritual sense. Uh, in his first coming, Jesus didn't disarm the Roman Empire. He didn't establish his own kingdom. So there's something spiritually that Jesus has done. And I think in his people, that's where it's exercised. We are no longer captive to the prince of the power of the air. We're actually able to be aware of his schemes, as we looked at last week in 2 Corinthians. We can be aware of his schemes, and we can uh, just live alertly, spiritually. Uh, but as far as the domain of Satan, he, he is able to, of course, lead the, the natural man, the unbeliever, and he is able to affect the church if we do not uh, have our guard up spiritually. Okay? Good. Good question. Other thoughts or questions? That probably created more questions than anything, didn't it? <laughs> Sebastian. Yeah, if we have the tendency to follow the darkness and we are children of God, what made us like go and choose the light? Why some people ah. choose the light, what other, other people Okay, I'm going to give you a very short answer, and then I'm going to tell you to wait, okay? The very short answer is God's grace. Okay. The longer answer is going to come later. We are going to do a whole section on salvation. And we will probably spend multiple weeks on that very topic. How on earth does someone make the decision to follow Jesus? That's a great question. That's a thinking man's question. I like that. Joanna. How does, like, God doesn't want Satan to do anything that he doesn't ordain. Yep. Satan doesn't just have a complete role, but that's God right. uses it, right? Yes. That's it. Um, yeah, I mean, God will use evil for good. Uh, Joseph is where we get the clearest expression of this. Joseph's brothers meant evil for him. And Joseph declares in the last chapter of Genesis, Genesis 50, verse 20, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Uh, Job, another really clear expression of the devil wanted to do stuff. He wanted to throw Job off. But God used all those events, all that calamity in Job's life for good. And so, yeah, God will, God will not only ordain the ends and just work with whatever he gets. God also is involved in the means. He knows exactly what's going to happen. He ordains whatever comes to pass. And he's that big and sovereign and good. We can't wrap our minds around that because we're just little pee-picking sinners, aren't we? And, but, but God is much bigger than we are. His ways are higher than our ways, and he works all this together. Okay? All right, let's talk about corruption now. That was depravity. Let's talk about corruption. Corruption has in view the pollution. There, there you can write that in the blank there at the top of page 16. The pollution of man's soul with sin. The spiritual poison has corrupted him. You could think of you know, that phrase, poisoning the well. Well, if we're viewing man's soul as the well, his soul has been poisoned, corrupted, polluted, right? And there are, of course, major ramifications because of that. Corruption does not mean inability. Though man is corrupted in his reason, he is not unable to reason. However, man is unable to reason his way to God. Now, we can dwell on that here for a moment. Uh, this is important. Man is, is not, because of sin, he is not rendered 
Again, brain dead. Like, I'm just unable to do math or science. I'm unable to make logical connections. That's not man's situation. We, of course, know uh, brilliant scientists, mathematicians, philosophers, poets, all kinds of people who are able to do those things brilliantly in a lost state, even though they're totally depraved. They're able to engage in all of those activities. However, man is unable to use his faculties to reason his way to God because he has been polluted in his spirit, in his soul. With God, there comes a moral accountability, doesn't there? Uh, and I'm not, here, I'm not here to say like, well, see, God is illogical. That's why man can't reason his way to God. No, God, God is the root of logic. Why does logic exist? Because God exists. Why does math exist? Because God exists. How is there consistency in the universe so that astronomers can figure things out? It's because God exists. However, when it comes to the individual man or woman in the lost state, that person is going to be unable to reason his or her way to God because his or her soul has been polluted by sin. There's judgment with God. Not only is he the foundation of logic and reason, he's the judge. And so what man does is he takes all the wonderful logic and reason that God gives us and he uses it for his own glory, uses it for himself. Because though we can affirm that the fallen human uses math and science and reason and logic and that he he can do so brilliantly, we have to deny that he would ever do so to honor God, right? The fallen person in his natural state is not going to endeavor into all of these studies, not going to endeavor into any kind of work, creative work for the glory of God in his heart. That's not what he's going to do. Because there's a pollution that has taken place, there's a corruption that has happened where he is not loving the Lord as God with all of his mind. He's using his mind, but he's not loving God with his mind. MacArthur and Mayhew said this includes, this corruption includes all of man's thinking, reason, desires, and affections. All of the behavior of the natural man is under the influence of the sin nature inherited from Adam because he is thoroughly corrupt. All the behavior. I I try to avoid sweeping statements when I can, but here's a place where you can make a sweeping statement. All of the behavior of the natural man is under the influence of the sin nature inherited from Adam because man is thoroughly corrupt. All right, let's look at Isaiah 64.6. A single verse and one that you already know, I'm pretty sure. You may not know the reference, but maybe today's the day you memorize this reference. Isaiah 64. Verse 6. Who can read that for us? Okay, go ahead, Dex. For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind takes us away. All right, so let's focus on the first half of this verse. Notice again the sweeping statements. All of us have become like one who is unclean. And all 
our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. So any attempts to be righteous or any attempts to appease God, they're just spoiled from the start here, aren't they? Any any endeavor to seek to earn cred with God or to be favored by God, just from the start, it's off. It can't happen. Because all of us have become unclean. All of them, the righteous deeds, quote-unquote righteous deeds, are like a filthy garment. Now, I'm not seeking to be inappropriate here this morning. I'm just seeking to be faithful to tell you what the Word of God says. Perhaps you've heard before, and it's true, the term here for filthy garment is the same term as minstrel rags. Pretty graphic language here used by the prophet to say that's what your righteous deeds are like to God. And if you know the law, the law of uh, Israel that was given through Moses, a woman during her menstrual cycle was considered unclean and had to be outside the camp. And there's something here that's being taught all through here. There's something that's being taught when it says, verse 6, we all have become like one who is unclean because of our sin, because of corruption. Our souls have been spoiled, polluted. And our righteous deeds are like those used menstrual garments. So God here is kind of hammering a point home, isn't he? There's a collective corruption being confessed to God in this verse. And the righteous deeds performed in the flesh apart from authentic faith are filthy, not righteous or good at all. There is nowhere you can look into the religious deeds or the spiritual deeds of a lost person and say, well, that's righteous. You can't do it. You cannot do it. This is what the Bible confronts you with. The lostness and the deadness of man in his natural state is all the way. Not mostly, not 99.9%, but through and through. All right? E.J. Young says these comparisons talking about uncleanness and filthy rags, are intended to stress the character of sin as pollution and to point out its disgusting nature. The righteous works that the people could present before God were even in their own eyes as disgusting and filthy as the menstrual claws of women. This aspect does not mean that all man ever does is outrightly sinful, But it begs the question, do morally neutral acts exist in the world? Now, this could keep you busy for a while as you're thinking through this. Now, when I say not uh, all man ever does is outrightly sinful, um, can can a lost man still make a sacrifice for his wife? Well, sure. And vice versa, right? Um, Can people still go to war on behalf of other people and give their lives for other people. And remember, Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that a man laid down his life for his friends. Okay, that's pretty astounding. But then we have to deal with this. We have to reckon with this and say, now what's going on here? Because if we're saying man is totally, thoroughly corrupted, if there's a pollution in his soul that has spoiled the whole thing, 
How do you make sense of that? Are these like morally neutral acts? So even though they're not righteous, maybe it's just somewhere in the middle? Do you have a solution to that, anybody? Okay, I think that's a great place to start. Stan says there's no middle. Good. I've been talking a long time. You guys need to talk a little bit. Where's the trash can? There it is. How do you make sense of this? Morally neutral would be the idea that a man has done something, but it's not good or bad, it's just a thing. And so the lost person, even though we recognize the Bible says that person's depraved and corrupted by sin, we recognize, well, they just did something that wasn't sinful, so it can't be good. We'll just say it's neutral. So would that kind of be like for myself, like I was before I found the gospel? Yep. Because I wasn't like, I felt like I was a good person. I wasn't mm-hmm. like murdering people, stealing. Good. I tried to give my kids a sense of direction. Good. Yeah, you but, weren't worshiping Satan. You didn't have a big pentagram in your living room and a dead like goat. I I was okay. A good person, but ultimately, I'm still a sinner. Okay. But would that be? That's the exact scenario. That's or it. Like, if you look at someone, I'm like, well, I wouldn't do that. That's a mm-hmm. little extreme. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not my problem. That's their problem no. to deal with later. Is so, that- so all those efforts that you went through as the natural woman who was corrupted by sin, how many of your deeds did God view as righteous? Okay. So now how are you going to process this? Because you're looking back and you're saying, but I wasn't just sinning 24-7, was I? Well, that's what was so fascinating to me about the gospel when I first read it, was I, it's not even that I didn't understand that I was a sinner. I never thought about it. <laughs> mm-hmm. I just never, mm-hmm. it never occurred to me. Yeah. But then to look back and see that God was still directing my life and in ways when I was like, had no clue, you know? Yep. That's kind of what makes it so stunning. Yes. <clears throat> Lizzie? I think it's, for me, it's kind of hard to understand because, I mean, we do see, sin, like, sinners, people who reject God in their heart, who haven't accepted the gospel, do things that are, you know, that are good, you know? And so it's like, I have to put it in perspective a lot, because it's like, okay, like, God is still in control of everybody and everything, and although, like, People have that sense of hospitality or that humanitarianism yep, yes. because they're the image of God. Yes, there's like a charitable nature that some people can have where they give money to somebody, bless somebody financially or whatever. Yeah. And so, so then God can use them. Oh, yeah. Mandy? Good deeds, though, do not satisfy um, Correct. So they're not effective relationally between us and God in any sense. Yeah, right. So that's, that's obviously a critical truth to remind yourself of as you're processing this. Okay, Is that 
However we categorize these acts, we know for certain they're not getting any cred with God. Okay? They're not earning favor with God. Rex? You know, a, thinking about that as a police officer, back before I became a believer, that's, that's the way we thought. We are doing so many good things yep. for people. You know, we've got a place in heaven waiting for us. Mm-hmm. All the good things we've done, all the bad going on, and how we kind of uh, stepped in and took care of those things and made things right, whatever, little did we know. Because many had said, you know, for a police officer, there's a place in heaven because he's been through hell on earth. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I imagine uh, God's wrath is a little more extreme than what police officers go through. Bit. Yeah. Well, let's turn back to page 15, just the page before. Look at the last fill-in-the-blank you had there. What kind of motivations can we say the natural man has? Rebellious. So I think as we begin to answer this question, it's important to focus on the motivations of people. So for instance, when does a horse thief become a horse thief? <laughs> yeah, what, did, what did Jesus challenge us to think about in the Sermon on the Mount when he was talking about murder and adultery and all that? He was pressing it down to the heart level, wasn't he? You've already committed adultery in your heart, he says. You've murdered your brother in your heart. So we can't perceive the heart. Scripture tells us that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Scripture also tells us that whatever we do, we are to do all for the glory of God. God. Uh, The last verse of Romans 14 says that whatever is not done from faith is sin. So start kind of collecting these thoughts here and think if someone is not doing these actions for the glory of the one true God who made them their creator to whom they owe all things if they're not doing it from faith if they're not loving the Lord their God then the motivation has to be off here doesn't it for instance uh, you look at these amazing tear jerking videos and they do make me cry almost every time uh, undercover boss was the, the main culprit for me for a long time. At the end, when the boss blesses somebody with a bunch of money, it just always made me cry. And now um, with you know, YouTube, you get these videos. Mr. Beast is the big guy these days who he gives away like tens of thousands of dollars to people. It's amazing. And you view it, and it's just like, oh, my goodness. But when you stop and think about it, it's on YouTube for people to see. And for people to applaud how good he is. What's the motivation here? Is it the glory of God or is it the glory of the giver? The giver. Yeah, it's kind of, it kind of seems that way. And even when you get down to the micro level, not, not, not just the big name, big events. When we examine the motivations of the totally depraved, naturally fallen sinner... Are we going to find in those motivations a desire to honor God from faith? No, we are not. So the motivations are something else. And so you can say, even though we look at at an act and say, wow, that's amazing. Wait a second, why are you doing that? Well, we don't know why they're doing it. But we can rule out one thing. God's glory, right? If if the person's not a believer. Yes. 
If the person's not a believer, we can rule out for the glory of God. Because you know, as a believer, how hard it is to remember to, to, to do things for the glory of God and not for the glory of yourself, right? And for someone who's not been born again, someone who's not been renewed in his mind by the gospel, there's not a desire to let, let Jesus be magnified through his life. There's not that desire. If there is that desire, then that person's probably believed the gospel. Um, well, if he's a Christian, yes. Yeah. But if someone is not a Christian, that person's just not going to do it for that reason. And now ultimately, all of those people giving all those millions are glorifying God. They just don't know it. <laughs> right? And so the distinction is um, someone who is acting from a heart of faith seeking to honor God rightly. Okay. Okay. Need to keep scooting along here. Uh, what we can say for certain is that all of sinful man's attempts to placate God will be rejected. Okay? His righteous deeds are filthy rags, and the fallen man does not seek to honor God. Well, let's talk about incapability. The natural man is absolutely incapable of pleasing God in his fallen state. Okay, so that's your blank there. Incapability refers to how the natural man is absolutely incapable of pleasing God. There is nothing in the natural man's life that God is pleased by. He does not regard any of the sinner's acts as good. So, of course, this is directly tied to what we were just discussing. Whatever is not done from faith is sin. The unbeliever is not living his life uh, from a perspective of faith to seek to honor God rightly. Therefore, he's falling short of the glory of God. He is sinning. He's not pleasing God. It also helps in this conversation at this particular point to remember that God doesn't need anything. You agree with me on that point? <laughs> God is self-sufficient. If he needed something, he would be a creature like us. So when, when we're thinking about this whole idea about pleasing God, we're not talking about giving something to God that he needs. God doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need any creature. All right? So God's not looking for someone to mechanically do something to satisfy a need that he has. God is looking at all of mankind. He's seeing all of man's actions. And through the lens of perfect truth and love, there's a judgment that's taking place. And the natural man in his fallen state is not going to please God with his actions. And the goal for Christians now is to find out what pleases God. That's what Ephesians 5, I think verse 10 says. We need to be seeking after what pleases God. That's our, that's our role. Because you are now able to do it. Before you were unable, now you can. Joe. Are we doing something to please God in order to get into heaven? What is our motive? Very good question. To answer the first question, no, 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 no. <laughs> Hopefully that was clear. Do I need to repeat it? <laughs> but what is our motivation? Is to magnify the God who made us and saved us. To make his name great among us. To, to show his glory to the world. To be lights of the world. That they would see God in us. That they would see the gospel through us. Not only 
in our actions, but of course as we proclaim it as we live. So our whole motivation is to lift up the name of the only one deserving of it, God himself. And that comes after you're saved. Yeah. Okay, good. Well, let's look at uh, Romans 8, 5 through 8. Very critical text. Again, notice the sweeping statements here. I want us to see the big, I don't know, the just catch-all terms that are used. Romans 8, 5 through 8. Who will read that for us? Go ahead, Rex. For those who are according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. For those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind is set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Wow. So that last verse, verse 8, is really where you get the hammer home statement. Those who are in the flesh cannot, cannot please God. Those who are in Adam are in the flesh, aren't they? The natural man is in the flesh. And in the flesh it is impossible. It's not even on the table as as an option to please God in any way. So what is the mind set on the flesh totally unable to do? Well, you get two things. Verse 7, it's unable to subject itself to the law of God. It says it is not able to do so. It is not even able to do so. The mind set on the flesh, the unregenerate mind, the natural mind, is unable to bring itself into submission to the authority of God and what He has declared to be true and right. So now we're getting into the realm of inability, not just willful choice. We're talking like not even able is what it says. And then the second thing is, of course, what I've already repeated, is pleasing God in any way. There's an inability, an impossibility in regard to pleasing God. Although man is able to think, to reason, to have desires and affections, he is unable to please God in any of those ways. This is, of course, bad news for mankind, and it's very important that we understand what God has said. In his natural state, man does not have his mind set on the spirit. He has his mind set on the flesh. That's natural to man. Therefore, he cannot subject himself to God, and he cannot please God. Got to hang on to those as far as what, what God has said about man's condition. Okay? Now, one more verse to look at on this particular point. It's just the next book over, 1 Corinthians 2.14. Talking about the Bible, the Word of God, how it has been delivered to us by the Spirit of God. And again, look at this inability language or incapability language. 1 Corinthians 2.14, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. So let me ask you this. Can sinners read? No. <laughs> Most of them can. Not the Bible. <laughs> well, they, they can read the words. Okay. But they're unable to do something. 
There's a natural rejection of the gospel and an inability to embrace and apply the spiritual principles that come from God's revelation. Now, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You want to see if God's working in somebody's life? Hand them a Bible and say, what did you get from this? What what are you learning? If this person is embracing and seeking to apply the spiritual principles that come from Scripture, that is a great sign. It's a great sign that it seems like maybe God's at work. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. Keep giving that person the Word. Keep working with that person. But so often, you get into conversations with people about the Bible, and it's just like mockery, right? Yeah, I can't understand that. Especially when our neighbors will say something like, well, it's been corrupted so much. To which we reply, no, you've been corrupted. I just learned in Sunday school that your, your soul's been polluted. And that's why you're rejecting, okay? It's not the Bible's fault, it's your fault. The natural rejection of man comes from his incapability here to embrace and apply the spiritual principles of God's revelation. David Lowry in his commentary says, like a deaf critic of Bach or a blind critic of Raphael is the unregenerate critic of God's word. I thought that's a really good way to put that. Someone who sits back and says, ah, the Bible. That's like a deaf person critiquing Bach. Because there's that incapability. There's that corruption that exists. Okay? Well, let's finish with guilt. (laughs) There's a sentence maybe you didn't think you'd hear today. Let's finish with guilt. And uh, it's James 2, 10 and 11. I'm going to go through this pretty quickly. I'd like to finish this today. James 2, verses 10 and 11, it says, Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Because all are condemned in Adam, it is necessarily true that all are guilty of Adam's sin. That's your blank. All are guilty of Adam's sin. Furthermore, every honest person will admit personal acts of sin that have been committed since youth. All people are completely guilty. So consider what James has presented here in these verses. If you stumble in one point of the law, you're guilty of breaking the whole thing. He's not really leaving room here for more guilty or less guilty, is he? Not at all. If you're guilty, you're guilty. And all people are guilty, are guilty, are guilty. All of us. And the punishment for this guilt is awful. It must be awful. Because we're not just, we're not just breaking a, a rule set forth by some guy. We are transgressing the holy command of the holy God. Therefore, there must be an awful punishment. The holy and eternal creator of all things has a holy and eternal punishment for all guilty sinners. That's for all people. So let your mind go there when we think about the devastating reality. There is. We're talking about hell now. We're talking about the lake of fire. We're talking about what's going to happen to people as they face the judgment of the holy and eternal God. Guilty 
corrupt, totally depraved, rebellious creatures must be judged. God would not be a good judge if He did not judge sin. He is a good judge. He will judge sin, and the punishment must be awful. Okay? So, I've talked through this. We'll finish up with a few thoughts here. Man's depravity has just as much to do with the righteousness and holiness of God as it does with the corruption and rebellion of people. The more that we understand how God must be perfect in all He does, the more we'll understand depravity. Okay? So as you think about depravity, don't go searching out, well, how bad is man really? And really focus on how bad you think man has to be. Start with God and how holy God is. And now the slightest transgression seems much bigger, doesn't it? Don't go applying your standards to man. That's not going to lead you to hell. You're not going to end with the lake of fire if you're applying your standards. Because you know how bad you are and you're going to cut people slack, aren't you? Start with God and how holy, comprehensively holy God is. Therefore, in the cross, we have a clear demonstration of the reason God punishes sin. If He did not punish sin, He would not be a righteous God. And there would be no ultimate justice in the universe. But when sin is punished, God is showing Himself to be a righteous judge over all. And justice is being done in His universe. Wayne Grudem. Okay? Very good. Well, thanks for staying a little late this morning. Let me pray, and then we'll move on to the next thing. God, You are holy. And you are just. We are unworthy in ourselves to come to your throne of grace. But we have found grace in Jesus and you've enabled us to come to you. And so we ask today, Lord, that you would work in our hearts and minds to draw us nearer to you, to mature us in Jesus and to make us more like him. God, help us to find all of our hope in him and his work. That we would be utterly, thoroughly dependent on your grace and nothing that we bring to the table. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.